This is Adam Hill, the minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ. I always tell our church family, read your Bible. You'll be a better Christian. My prayer is that this Bible-based sermon will help you follow Christ more faithfully. Let's learn together as we study the Word today. Having begun our year in a study through the life of Jesus, as told in the Gospel of Mark, which we completed that study, it culminated through our Holy Week celebration. And I want to take a moment to thank, um, our, our, there are a lot of folks who worked really hard during Holy Week. Uh, we had five services uh, this year. And there was a lot going on, and I want to thank uh, especially just our team, uh, the staff team worked really hard, and also I, I really want to call out Dan um, and Betty for incredible hours. Um, that they, you know, our, our whole team worked hard, but, you know, Betty really takes ownership of that week. and. Just, she kills it uh, and is awesome at it. And so we're super thankful for her. And then Dan, we couldn't have done it without you. Um, so super thankful for them. Well, for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of Acts to learn more about what it means to be the church that God intends for us to be and to take seriously that call that Jesus gave us, follow me. And as we study the book of Acts... Here's the deal. I grew up with the book of Acts. All right. Having, having been raised in the churches of Christ, a part of the restoration movement, I've had plenty of exposure to the book of Acts. But I've come to a sad conclusion that a lot of what was taught to me while growing up has come to be, okay, here's the deal. It wasn't wrong. It was inadequate. When it came to preparing me to actually follow Jesus. You see, somehow I learned growing up that the main purpose of the book of Acts was to give us correct doctrine, especially about how to do church right on Sunday mornings. And it's not that the book of Acts doesn't show us the early church worshiping. And it's not that it doesn't provide for us meaningful expression of doctrinal truth. It's just that when I look at it, I wonder, no matter how grateful I am for my upbringing and my heritage, I read Acts now and I have no idea how we thought that's what the book was really up to. It's almost like we didn't pay attention to the story it was telling. That we turned the story of a ground-shaking, earth-transforming revolution into a manual on church polity and discipline. For example, if you're, if you're new to the Bible or reading Acts with fresh eyes, it may surprise you how often the earliest Christians are in trouble with the law. And, and, and we've taught folks... To read Acts as a paradigm for Christian practice, but I've never heard that part of the story recommended for most people in our churches. And I'm not trying to increase our jail time. <laughs> uh, but I think we lose sight. It is easy to lose sight of just how revolutionary this message is. 
Annie Dillard said it this way. She said, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. I'll warn you that if we read this story carefully, we just might find out that we're not in the safe and domesticated place we thought we had come to this morning. We just might find out that we're at ground zero for this community's local Jesus revolution. So here's the key to the premise. Here's my key premise to reading the book of Acts. That the book of Acts is the story of the first community of disciples breathlessly trying to keep up with God's spirit who leads them in unexpected ways into God's mission and reign as they express the person and work of Jesus Christ in their time and their places. So that was a mouthful. But man, you could write a book on it. Let's call it the book of Acts. Not a creative title, but it'll, it'll work. You see, the book of Acts is about the church on the move. If you, beginning in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, and it's about the church. Beginning in Acts 9 verse 2, we mentioned, and mentioned five other times in the book of Acts, the church is identified as the way. So that he found any there who belonged to the way. Okay, the church is given a title, it's the way, whether men or women, he, and, and this is Paul who wants to persecute them and take them as prisoners. I, I like the term the way because it reminds us that we are journeying, that we're moving, that we're going somewhere. I like way a whole lot more than the building. In Acts eleven twenty six, 26, the early followers of Jesus were given the name Christians <clears throat> in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And I also like this name because it reminds us that we are the Christ ones. We should be easily identified as those following, as those following the ways of Christ. But my favorite description of the community of faith in the book of Acts is found in chapter 17 and verse 6. Because in Acts 17 and verse 6, they've gotten in trouble. They've caused a little bit of a mess. They've caused a disturbance. And in Acts 17, 6, it says that those people, this is our critics, are saying those people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That that was the description of the early, those people who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. They've caused trouble everywhere. So how did we go from that to, well, where we are today? And this is a crucial question because it's worth noting that this book is very open-ended. There's no great wrap-up or conclusion to the book of Acts. And that's okay because the story in Acts can be open-ended because it's still being told in our church today. 
Okay, the, the reason the book of Acts is open-ended is because it's the story of how the community of disciples breathlessly try to keep up with God's Spirit who leads them unexpectedly into God's mission and reign as they express the person and work of Jesus Christ in their times and places. It's almost like that sentence was my key premise. Study after study comes out telling us more and more Americans believe that religion is irrelevant and obsolete. That Christians are hypocritical, are exclusive, and are mean. And that the church is actually an instrument of division and negativity in the world. We know that this is not God's desire for his people, nor is it God's desire for the world. So how do we regain what we've lost? What does it mean to be a community that turns the world upside down? Today we're going to return to the very beginning of the church as as we begin this series by looking at what it means to be a community of spirit. Psalm 127 and verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it are labor in vain. So what kind of house has the Lord built? And it's probably better than the one we could build. Now during our Bible class time to follow, one of our classes is going to be looking closely at Acts chapter 1. But suffice it to say that as the book opens, the community of disciples who have seen the resurrected Christ now wait for him just as he told them to do. And they are there waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. With that in mind, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. And and it's our custom here to reverence the holy God of Scripture and his authority by asking you to stand, if you're willing and able, while we read this from the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Heavenly Father, you are welcome in this place. And forgive us when we say those words as if they are normal or safe. God, we welcome your earth-changing, life-changing presence into this place and into our lives. And God, we ask that you would speak for your children are listening. It's in Christ's name and in the spirit we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here they all are gathered in one place. And they're waiting for God to take action. And the first thing that happens is an eruption of sound from heaven. Wind shows up. 
we just got started and suddenly a sound like blowing of a violent wind comes from heaven and fills the whole things are things are tearing up things are just getting started and all of a sudden we're breaking open and things are being torn loose and 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 and, and all of a sudden it makes me think that maybe this could be the same wind that on the first morning of all mornings blew across the waters of the deep the wind of creation that blows things into being. And in in verse 3, what was first heard is now seen as tongues of flame or fire appear on their heads and with playful ambiguity in Luke 2, 4, or in, in, in Acts 2, 4, Luke moves from the mention of these tongues of fire to the varied tongues of foreign languages being used to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And just like that, we move from inside the room to outside in the streets. Where people are hearing and seeing all this that's happening. You see, being the community of spirit comes with two fundamental hallmarks according to the book of Acts. The first one is revelation. I don't mean the book. I mean the act of God revealing himself. Revelation. God speaks. God shows up. God, God, God makes himself known. You see, the church in Acts exists as the church has always existed since. As a people who claim to know something that we would not have known except had it been given to us. You see, the book of Acts opens with the community waiting for something to happen, listening for a word. And presumably, if God had said nothing, if God had done nothing, there would be no more community. Our church exists today in the same situation as a result of the dialogue between a God who won't stay silent and a community striving to listen. But like our ancient ancestors, we wait. But just like them, we wait in hope. We wait as those who know that our Lord and Master has been taken up and sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We are those who know that the same one who served us and taught us and loved us now reigns for us. For us. For us. And that knowledge is knowledge that demands a witness. When the disciples first hear in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that they have a mission of proclamation that's supposed to extend to the whole ends of the earth, you know what the first thing is that they do? They don't get busy. They don't go work. They don't start talking. The first thing they do is stop and pray. Because they realize that the witness that they have to share depends completely on God. That God's going to make the move. God's going to speak the words. God's going to reveal and they're going to follow. It's not practical that at such a demanding and urgent juncture... They would stop and pray and wait. However, disciples are are those who have been told the promised kingdom is a gift given in God's own time. 
And the promised spirit is given in grace. And so their mission requires much more than their earnest striving. And it requires much more than their busyness. The second hallmark of a church, the fundamental hallmark of a church that is a community of spirit. The first one was revelation. We're a community of revelation. The second one is going to be that we're a community with a mission. That, that being led by the Spirit means we have a mission. The church is the community of folks who are swept along by the Spirit to bear continuing and vibrant witness to what God has done for us all in Jesus. And I think sometimes we forget how miraculous it is, how powerful it is, how revolutionary it is. And so we end up with a completely domesticated and safe understanding of church that looks like a building or optional weekend plans. An understanding of the gospel that sounds like fire insurance or escape by teleportation after we die. And so the world ends up increasingly seeing Christianity as irrelevant, oppressive, and boring. And so it is with all utmost seriousness I ask you theologically loaded questions like, what in God's name happened? Acts tells the story of a new reality that has turned the world upside down, relativized all existing relationships, and enabled believers to live as people between the times. Between the the end of an old age held by the powers of death and evil and a new age where the future is still to be fully realized, it's still open-ended to the movements of the Spirit. Look what happens in chapter, five, or in chapter 2 and verses 5 and following, because here's the response. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. You see, the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit is profoundly unsettling and deeply threatening to some in the crowd. And so they have to devise some kind of explanation, some rationalization for such irrationality. And so they say, they've had too much wine. It's interesting, and we'll, we'll see this time and again, that what happens to the church in Acts is what happened to Jesus before them. Okay, that's going to be an important point. What you see the church go through in Acts is what you see Jesus having gone through in the gospel. That the church is the expression of the person and work of Jesus Christ in its time and place. So what you see Jesus endure, the church will endure. What you see Jesus go through like when he was accused of being a drunkard. In Luke 7.34, so here is the beginning movement in the church and they're accused of being drunk. 
The, the, the people, they, these guys are, and, 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 and being drunk on wine or being drunk on new wine you may have in your expression. It could be that they say, boy, these guys are a little loopy. These guys are crazy. Or they could be saying, these guys are drunk. Or they could be saying, these guys are crazy drunk. Could go any way. But I love Peter's response. He steps up and he says, he raises his voice and addresses the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. <laughs> if, if you'd waited till 5.30, all bets are off with regards to sobriety. <clears throat> but nine in the morning, no, okay. Perhaps... More interesting to note, though, is who actually it is that's responding to the crowd. Here the crowd is saying, this doesn't make any sense. And it's Peter who stands up to speak back. Peter has stepped out in front of the crowd, in front of the whole mob that's gathered. And he's stood up to say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is what happens when you follow Christ. You see, our lingering memory from what we last saw Peter doing during Holy Week, if you were keeping score, was him slumped down in tears, having just fled from where he's denied Christ three times in order to break his promise to Jesus and save his own neck. You see, resurrection is a powerful thing, for it makes a powerful preacher out of a shameful coward. And just as the Spirit breathed life into the first man, Adam, so the Spirit has breathed new life into Peter and gives him the power of witness. The Spirit is power to witness. The engine that drives the church into all the world. And there is no evidence in the book of Acts that the Spirit is a mild, personal, interior comfort. Rather, it is wind and fire. It is loud noise and buzzing confusion. It is public debate. The Spirit is the power which enables the church to go public with its good news, even from unlikely sources like Peter. And Peter gives the first sermon in the history of the church. Now I know that some of you may be saying, a sermon? Another sermon? Oh, this is going to get even better because there's a meta thing happening here that it's a sermon about a sermon right now. It doesn't get any better for people like me. You see, here's the deal. 28 times in the book of Acts there's a sermon given. Did you know that sermons comprise a full third of the words used in the book of Acts? So if you're not a big fan of sermons, this study's going to be rough. But see, a good speech can really make a difference. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address did a whole lot more than simply open up a cemetery. Didn't it? It gave meaning and substance to a national cataclysm. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech reinterpreted our history and our constitution and mobilized the people for action, for justice. You see, a good speech can turn us inside out. 
And so Peter starts in verse 16. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Here's, here's this. He says, Joel 2 is all about what's happening right now. You're seeing prophecy fulfilled. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All of them, all of them. Your sons and daughters, them too, yes, they'll prophesy. Young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams even on my servants, both men and women. Praise God. I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Sounds awesome. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. Stop sounding awesome. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Sounds terrifying. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That the Spirit will show up and it will do something and it's inclusive and it's cataclysmic and it demands a response from people. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He's really not going for like, I'm going to win them over easy at first. He's coming straight out with their culpability. You put him to death. You did the worst thing that we could do. God sent the lifeboat and you sunk it. Now what? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him because death can't beat life. The one God sent, you rejected. You said no. But in the resurrection, God says no to our no. Then he's going to talk about what, what that means. He said, David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will let, not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And David said that. But then Peter goes on to say, but he couldn't have been talking about himself. How do you know that? It's an open book quiz. Because I can testify to you that David's body is right here. Meaning, he stayed dead and it's seen decay. David couldn't have been talking about himself because none of it was true about him. Is what Peter is saying. I confidently tell you, this patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb's still here to this day. But he was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And of this we are all witnesses of the fact. That the first sermon is loaded with the good news of resurrection. Because it turns out 
This world is loaded with the bad news of death. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. See, the hope of resurrection is the answer to the power of death. And this is not just a call to reprioritize our faith. This is a whole new age. This is the age of resurrection. God's revolution is empowered not by death, but by life. God has made him whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jalen and Ashley, why don't you all come up? He's made him the Lord, the Master, the King. The authority. He tells me what to do. When I say Jesus is Lord, I mean that he's my master. He's my king. He's the authority. And he tells me what to do. If you got it, say got it. it. Good. You're like, you're not wearing the suit, so you don't get amens as quickly. (laughs) I get it. And then he says he, he didn't just make him Lord, he made him Messiah. Messiah means he's the deliverer. He's the promised redeemer. He's my savior. And so my sins are forgiven because of his work. Death no longer has a hold of me because of his work. He is my Lord. But when I say Jesus is my savior, I mean he is my forgiver. He is my healer. He is my redeemer. And I have him as both Lord and Messiah. And I think there's a lot of people who really want Jesus as Messiah, Savior. Who really don't want Jesus as Lord. As Master. As the authority, as the boss. And there's a lot of folks who are really good at following the rules of Jesus as Lord who have yet to really sacrifice their own pride and realize that they need this Savior. That they're not the good people to everyone else's bad people. Cut to the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Repent and be baptized. When we're baptized, we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are baptized into the name of Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't the first person to do the baptism thing. 
you read your New Testament, John the Baptist has that name for a reason. And it's not because he's part of the Southern Baptists. <laughs> Turns out he walks around baptizing people. And he's baptizing them for the remission of sins. He's baptizing them so that they'll be prepared for the kingdom that's coming. Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you with both water and spirit. We are a community of spirit that when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, we are baptized to receive the forgiveness of sins, but we're also baptized to receive the gift of the spirit. That we have living in us the adoption seal of God. Because we have proclaimed him as our Lord and as our Savior, even though we've been killing him. Do you want him as he is? A lot of us want to remake him in our own image. But if you want him as he is, join with the 3,000 who accepted that day. Verse 41, and were added to their number and were repented and they were baptized. And so the question is, will you do the same today? If you haven't already received him, repent and be baptized. It'll change everything. To learn more about Rochester Church of Christ, check out www.rochestercoc.org. There you can find links to other teachings, opportunities to join our family and serve, as well as ways to support our work. It truly is a wonderful time to be the church. I pray that you're blessed. Remember, you are loved and you are chosen.